Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Hi, welcome to Series 5, Episode 6. Today we're joined by Jeremy Brown, who's a respiratory consultant at UCLH. Jeremy has a special interest in the complications that can arise in the lungs following chemotherapy and stem cell transplantation. So we cover a broad array of subjects, including pneumonia, PCP, aspergillosis, CMV, and TB. And we also cover some non-infectious complications, such as lung GVH and organizing pneumonia. Thank you, Jerry, for joining us. And do you mind giving us a little background about your, your career or how long you've worked at UCLH and in this specialty? Okay, so um, I joined UCLH in August of 2003 as a consultant at that time. And my job is 50% research, 50% clinical. And my interest has always been respiratory infections. I did a PhD in Aspergillus. And actually, since then, I've worked mainly on pneumococcus. But clinically, I'm interested in, in respiratory infections and, and the, the problems that the immunosuppressed patient can get in their lungs, which are broad and range from infection to non-infectious, etc. type problems. And I suppose I've been doing it for a long time now as well, since 2003 here. What would you say are the main referrals that you get from our haematology teams for your advice? So this is different between inpatients and outpatients. Okay. So inpatients, it's like there's this abnormal chest x where the patient's got a fever and they can't breathe what's going on. That's, broadly speaking, what happens. And it's a question of trying to work out which of the many different pathogens could possibly be causing the problem. A very important point is that when you're approaching the management of a patient, I don't have to work out exactly what's causing the problem the patient's suffering from. It would be great if you can, but actually it's very hard to do that. What I need to do is narrow down the range of different pathogens from the sort of dozen or so common ones to something a bit more manageable, plus all the potential non-infectious causes, so that you don't end up giving somebody antifungals, antivirals, anti-PCP, antibacterials, uh, and so on and so on. You actually have a bit more of a sensible empirical treatment course. And in terms of newly diagnosed patients, um, do you get a lot of referrals for newly diagnosed patients? I don't really, I think, because most of those, I mean, essentially, most newly diagnosed patients, if they've got a respiratory problem, it is likely to be an acute bacterial pneumonia and will, will be okay with conventional antibiotics most of the time. I think the newly diagnosed ones only come to me if they're not responding to straightforward stuff to start with. And then you have to think about fungi, basically. And is it the transplant patients where it's usually the more sort of complicated diagnosis then? Or, or can it be a patient at any point in maybe their treatment for their, um, their cancer? I suppose the difference with the transplant patients is it is probably a bit broader, the range of problems that they tend to get. If you have a lymphoma, it's relatively constrained. The leukemia is relatively constrained. But once you have a transplant, the full, the full range of potential pathogens becomes potentially possible. Although, at which stage post-transplant, that will dictate to a certain extent which pathogens are the most likely. And also with a transplant, you always have the, the worry of lung gruffus host disease in the background. And do you see more problems in within the first 100 days? I know it's different between inpatients and outpatients, but is the two classifications of most common symptoms or complications post-transplant in the first 100 and then post-100 days? Yes, and I think the, the infectious complications, you can break it down into two main categories. The ones which are largely related to neutropenia, 
and the others which are largely related to T-cell mediated immune deficiencies. And those, the sort of the emphasis on the neutropenics is going to occur during the neutropenic phase, and, and the duration and depth of that is the important thing that matters in a stem cell transplant. So for an autologous transplant, it's not such a long period of time, but for an allograft, it can go on for three or four weeks, I think. And then the chance of getting a fungal infection is pretty high. Uh, and the T-cell mediated immune de- deficit is stronger for an allograft than it is for an autologous transplant. Uh, so the chance of getting one of the pathogens which occurs in those situations, which is CMV and PCP pneumocystis, um, is higher. Um, and But that, that chance of getting it is not just in the first two or three weeks. It goes on for weeks. And how long would you worry about a patient developing those complications post-transplant? Yes, I think that's, it depends what they're doing to the patient, they being the (laughs) haematologist. So they're carrying on with the uh, tachylimus or the serolimus, or they've been given steroids for, say, skin or liver, graft versus host disease, and that extends the period when you're more at risk of the the other pathogens. So it, it really does depend a lot on what's happened to the individual patient. And how immunosuppressed they are and continue yes, to be. Yeah, how, how much immunosuppression they've been given uh, over and above the transplant itself for basically graphous host disease is the main thing. And our patients stay on cyclosporin for a good six months. Yes, they do. Yeah, and that's going to increase, that maintains the, the risk of having a, a PCP or a, or a CMV or a viral infection. How do you distinguish between what's going on with the patient, so what diagnostic test? Okay, so the diagnostic test comes after the evaluation of what's going on clinically. So there's a, it's a complicated matrix of, I mean, I'll make it sound more complex than it is actually, but it is a matrix of things. So it's the clinical presentation and that involves the speed of development of the problems and the exact problem that the patient has. So something like a bacterial pneumonia tends to present quite quickly you know, it develops over two or three days, and there'll be a high fever and a high C-reactive protein, and they're quite an acute, rapid progression. Whereas aspergillus, it tends to be slower, and they might present with just fever. They won't be coughing. There may not be a much hypoxia because there's not much consolidation. Whereas pneumocystis is even slower. In general, it's a three to four week process, and it's very, very stepwise. They just slowly but surely get worse over that time with more breathlessness and more cough. So there's a sort of clinical timing and a constellation of symptoms which indicate what sort of pathogens might be present. Then the immune background of the patient is essential. You're not going to get aspergillus unless you're neutropenic or you're on steroids in general. Now, there's unfortunately, you invent new drugs and there's new problems. So in brutinib, for example, that increases your risk of aspergillus infection. That's not particularly well recognized, but it definitely does. Basically, there's a background to the patient, an immune background, which suggests what pathogens might be a problem. So you take that into account as well. And then there's the radiology. And the radiology of the chest X-ray, unfortunately, isn't very helpful because it's just a bit fuzzy and odd-looking. It doesn't give you the true pattern. And the true pattern of the disease is displayed by the CT scan. And that's why the CT scans are done early in these patients is because you can get a much better feel for what type of infiltration is in the lung. And that will tell you the likely pathogens. It's relatively easy, a big nodule, that's going to be aspergillus or another fungus most of the time. Loba consolidation, it's going to be probably bacterial infection. Diffuse ground glass is a problem because that could be a whole bunch of different things. It could be pneumocystis and the pattern of that distribution of the ground glass will help 
dictate whether it's, well, will help suggest whether it's pneumocystis, because pneumocystis tends to go to the upper part of the lungs and spare the periphery, so it's quite a distinctive pattern. Or it could be CMV or respiratory virus, or it could be early phase of bacterial infections as well. And then there's something called trium bud, which represents small airways inflammation, and that's pretty distinctive on the CT scan. That tends to suggest there's a viral infection going on, although occasionally you can get it with aspergillus and mycoplasma and things like that. So the CT scan is really helpful. Unfortunately, the patient often has either not a clear pattern or has several patterns simultaneously, and that gets it, that's confusing. So what do you do in that situation? Well, uh, I go back to the point I made earlier about trying to identify the best empirical treatment. So essentially, if you've got somebody who's got a big macronodule with some fuzzy stuff around the outside, you think that's going to be aspergillus, you don't need to treat anything else. You can just get on with the aspergillus treatment and get do some tests to confirm it, and that would be fine. And if you've got ground glass, which is in a PCP distribution, and the patient's at risk of PCP because they haven't been on septum prophylaxis and they've had an allograft or an autograft, then fine, you just treat it. If the, the ground glass is all over the damn place and there's bits of focal consolidation as well, then you're going to have to treat bacteria and have to think about the other things as well. So you, you end up adding extra layers of treatment to cover things which might account for the mixture of patterns you get. What kind of confidence does the patient being on a prophylaxis for antifungal or PCP kind of give you that maybe this might not be that? Okay. Or it, it yeah, so if they're taking septum prophylaxis, if they're taking it, and then you know you have to make sure they are taking it, yeah. and not just prescribed it, then they should not get PCP. That's, it's, a fairly, it's fairly good. The fungal prophylaxis, not so good. It uh, doesn't work so well, and that, that, that's more of a problem. Are we talking about itraconazole specifically? Well, it doesn't or, work or very well. Well, yes, we use posiconazole now, yeah. and even that doesn't work all the time. There is azole resistance amongst aspergillae now, and it may not be an aspergillus. It could be another filamentous fungus, which are intrinsically resistant to azoles. So if you thought you had something like I don't know, a fungal infection and you started the treatment for it, how, how would you be assessing whether it's, it's working or not? Is it just clinically or is it well, so, yeah, scans soon after? Or? The temperature. Okay. Yeah, somebody's got a fever and you start the treatment for whatever pathogen you think is causing that fever and the fever goes away, then you, your quid's in. Yeah? You're, you're winning. If it doesn't go away, then you're not winning. And if the shadowing is getting worse, you're definitely not winning. So that's how you tell largely. It's simple enough. You record the temperature, and if it goes down, then you're okay. You, 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 we, we've hit the spot with whatever treatment we're giving, generally speaking. When you said earlier about an auto, for example, we don't tend to give them antifungal mm. prophylaxis anymore, and is that simply because the neutropenic phase isn't as it's long? Too, yeah, it's too short to be necessary. They don't get PCP prophylaxis as well. There have been a few cases where PCP has occurred in those patients, but I guess the instance is not high enough to warrant given septum to all, or, or pentamidine or whatever to all of them. Of the infections that patients suffer with, how many of them are, or what, to what extent are some of them transmitted, or there's like a vector that brings it in, and to what extent are they kind of normal lung flora, potentially? Okay, that is a complicated answer. <laughs> we could take each pathogen in turn and discuss okay, it if you right. want to, because it's the only way to do this, right? Okay. So if you've got a bacterial pneumonia, where's that bacteria come from is the question. So yeah, yeah largely, when you get a bacteria causing a pneumonia, it, the bacteria has got there from your own body. 
it's a commensal somewhere in your body, normally the throat. It gets aspirated into the lung and then causes infection. So the causative organism depends on what is colonizing your body. And what colonizes your body depends on what's happened to you. So if you come fresh from out there, we've never been to hospital, into hospital, you would be normally colonized with relatively easy bacteria to treat, simple things which are not resistant because they've not been exposed to much to antibiotics. Once you've been through the hematology mill and have been on the ward a few times, you're going to be colonized with a range of resistant, largely gram-negative organisms, which can cause pneumonia, and therefore you need to be sure that you're treating those sort of organisms when somebody develops pneumonia. So if someone's intubated, it aids the sort of the translocation, or is it just they're critically mm. unwell, okay, and therefore so, they're likely... Yeah. First of all, critical care, being that ill, impairs your already poor immune response. So you take a normal person, and they're critically ill, and you measure various immune functions, they will be impaired. So you have that on top of the fact that somebody's a hematology patient and has a horrible immune deficiency as it is. And also I describe the ET tube as a motorway. It essentially allows whatever goes down it to go straight down into quite deep into the lungs. And therefore the chance of establishing a pneumonia is much easier. So you miss out all that physical defenses of the trachea and the upper airways, which try and prevent bacteria and whatever reaching your lungs. Uh, it diverts past that. Now, of course, it's connected to a ventilator and it's meant to be clean air, etc., etc., but it's not as simple as that. So if we have a hematology patient and we've got, like, they, they work on a building site and they're, like, we're assuming there's lots of aspergillus, would we treat them differently or would we still just wait and see how they, how they respond to, you know, their course of chemotherapy and if they pick up an infection? Like, so, so you know, newly diagnosed, somebody who's been turning over their compost heap recently or has been on a building site, I don't know, to be honest, because that's actually prior to the point where I see them. That would be the haematologists who make a decision about whether. I doubt if they will change their normal pattern of what they do. They just, have a, I think that's too, too much granularity to adjust your treatment to that sort of social circumstance. When we spoke to some of our doctors about transplant patients and worry about their chest during transplant, some of the things they wanted to know is, is there things that we could do to prepare patients before going into transplant in some way? You should do lung function, pre-transplant lung function. And one thing that might be a good is if the haematology nurse, one of several of you, could learn how to do handheld spirometry, because that would be an immensely useful thing. Because if you're coming out of an allograft and somebody's breathless, and I want to know whether they've got graft versus host disease, you diagnose it on spirometry, but you need to know what it was to get diagnosis accurate, you need to know what the spirometry was before they had the transplant. Okay. Because there are specific changes that occur with lung graft versus host disease. And obviously the lung transplant, so people smoke, people have, have asthma. So if they have that in the background, you don't know whether, the, and the changes you get with smoking and asthma are the same changes on lung functions you get with graft versus host disease. They're exactly the same. So the way you diagnose graft versus host disease is normal lung function pre-transplant now looks obstructive post-transplant. But if you don't know what it was before, you can't be sure. So say a baseline a spirometry baseline. from yeah. when they came in. It would be very easy to do. The, the thing about doing a spirometry yeah. is to ensure the patient is doing their best effort. Because mm -hmm. if they don't, your numbers will be too low. Okay. Right? You don't get accurate numbers unless somebody really forces themselves to do it. And that just requires the person who's doing it to just 
you know, keep an eye on the person who's doing it. And be confident, and I've seen it being yeah. done a couple of times. So. But it's actually very easy. It's an interesting thought because it can be very easy to do as part of the admission that the yeah, nurses... Yeah, I mean, it takes five minutes and it actually is immensely helpful later on. And I think you're probably doing more transplants in older and people who've been through a few things already or smoked in the past. And, and therefore, the background of the patients is not... You know, they're not 30-year-olds who, yeah. who you can guarantee have pretty much normal lung function before you get going. If they're 60 and they've smoked in the past, they could have abnormal lung function. What about the use of incentive spirometry? We use the incentive mm. spirometry with sickle patients, but we don't tend to use it in any of our other patients. So I, I don't know whether there's any evidence that will help. After transplant, patients don't feel too well, do they? They're not best of health, and they're lying around a bit, and yeah. something to, to make sure they're opening up their lungs and you're not getting eight electrodes at the bottom, which might help prevent pneumonia. I don't, but I don't know if there's any evidence of that. There's lots of research going into prehab now for patients going into transplant and being as active as possible and trying to maintain that through their transplant as much as possible will obviously help. Yeah, I mean, getting out of bed and moving around is, I mean, it's probably just as good as, inspe- as incentive yeah. spirometry. It's just, you just need people to stand up, get the lungs fully expanded and breathe a bit. And in terms of diagnosing graft versus associated with the lungs, is that a time when you do a bronchoscopy to determine that or not? You don't know. So female lung graphus host disease is that it doesn't show up on x-rays. It doesn't show up on a clinical examination. The only way you can diagnose it is by talking to the patient about their breathing and doing spirometry. That's a little bit black and white. You can see subtle things on CT scans and you can see subtle signs when you examine them. But for all intents and purposes, the average physician will not find those signs and will not find anything on the CT scan. So it's just on clinical symptoms? It's on symptoms, breathlessness. And the trouble is that if you've had a transplant, you don't do much afterwards. It takes a long time to, to get back to, to normal behaviour. So you don't feel like going for a walk around the local park until a few weeks after the transplant if you're lucky, and therefore you won't notice whether you're breathless or not necessarily. But the spirometry, if it's done properly, should identify patients who have lung GVHD. What are some of the inflammatory changes that you might see following a, a transplant? Is that a set of problems that might present as well? So the non-infective yeah. lung conditions. Yeah, there's a whole, I mean, there's lung graphus host disease is one of them, which doesn't show up on the x-rays. The other big one that we see quite a lot of is organised pneumonia, which is the way I explain it to a patient is that when you have an infection in the lungs, the bug causes a lot of inflammation and in comes lots of stuff into the lungs, into the white, white cells and infiltrates. And... What an organised pneumonia is, is that that stuff persists beyond when the infection has been cleared. So normally, you kill the bug, the infection goes away, and all that stuff in your lungs gets cleared out. But organised pneumonia, it doesn't. It persists, and that means the patient remains hypoxic and breathless. And actually, it can cause lung fibrosis eventually. And diagnosing it isn't easy. It's all about the pattern of the radiology and whether the patient should have cleared that consolidation at that point. Some of the patterns are very specific for organised pneumonia, but not always. And how long consolidation should last after an infection is a bit of a piece of string question. So it's a little bit tricky. Uh, To make a proper diagnosis, you should do a lung biopsy, but that's not something we're going to do easily or likely on anybody. And what would be the indications for a bronchoscopy? This is a little tricky Mm -hmm. because it depends. It's all about how confident I am from the non-bronchoscopy 
assessment, so the clinical and radiological and whatever blood tests have been done, assessment about what's going on. So there are some new tests which are very useful. Uh, there's, so there's the blood test for galactomannan, which tells you about aspergillus, and there's a blood test for beta-glucan, which tells you about generally fungi, but essentially you use it in combination with uh, the galactomannan to tell you whether someone's got PCP or not. So a high beta-glucan and a negative galactomannan, that's PCP, most likely. And you could treat on that? Yes, okay. I'll be happy, as long as the CT scan and the clinical situation. You know, in the past, we've just, we've, we don't do bronchoscopies that often with PCP for, well, essentially, I'm normally asked at a point where we can't do a bronchoscopy for three days. So is it PCP? Well, it's the high enough suspicion to treat. Treat, if the patient gets better, then we don't need to do the bronchoscopy. If they're, getting, if they're not getting better, then we do. But the beta-glucan has allowed us to be a bit more confident in our clinical diagnosis of PCP. And that prevents quite an invasive procedure, which is good. Yeah, so bronchoscopy is not without its risks. It drops your PaO2 by 2.2 kilopascals, right? And so if you're running at 7 already, you're going to go into ITU after a bronchoscopy. You can't do it in those circumstances. And the patient, the faster they're breathing, the, the, you, know, you look at it and you say, well, that patient, you're going to do a bronchoscopy. They're already breathing at 30 a minute. They're not going to do well. So the hypoxia involved is significant, and if people are teetering on the edge, you could put them over the edge and put them into intensive care, which is not an intubated, which is not good. And then, of course, your platelet count of six doesn't make our bronchoscopists very excitable. They get <laughs> they uh, they worry about bleeding, not un, you know, and that is it is possible to do bronchoscopy in somebody with platelets of six. So you just can't do any biopsies. I actually you know, I don't do bronchoscopies very often because I think we can do enough on the clinical and the radiological and the blood test assessments to to be okay. And the risk of bronchoscopy isn't insubstantial. And the problem is actually the patients you really need the bronchoscopy on are the ones which are the hardest ones to do on because the ones with diffuse ground glass could be anything type scenario where it could be a non-specific pneumonitis or a non-infectious cause or it could be a, one of a range of different pathogens. Uh, and you need a sample to try and work out what's going on, those are the ones who are really hypoxic and can't breathe, and therefore it's... Too difficult to do. Yeah, can be too difficult. And once somebody's in intensive care, they cannot have a bronchoscopy until they're intubated. Do we see many cases of tuberculosis? So it's not an acute pathogen, but if something's going on for a few weeks, then it comes into the equation. And especially if there's a cell-mediated immune deficit of some description, so post-transplant steroids, etc. And the risk of TB is largely dictated by the patients uh, where they're born. So if you're born in a high-risk country and you then do a, an allograft on them, the chance of TB coming through is not insubstantial. But we don't see it that much. Basically, it's there at the back of the mind. But knowing the patient's birthplace will bring it to the fore of the mind. <laughs>